So you're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Community 2 X. We're talking forensics, we're talking crime scenes. Allegedly, we are now live on Community 98.3 FM. Our guest today is a Dr James Robson with a beautiful accent. The University of Canberra representative on the NCFS, which is the National Centre for Forensic Studies, and fellow forensics person, Fuzzy Logic regular, Broderick. Okay, now James... If indeed this is an incident that we are now involved in, what's going on? How would we prove it? How would anybody know and untangle what has happened here in the studio? Well, the first thing is this would be a crime scene, so I'd be locking you guys out and the show would be closed. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, yeah, look, the, 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 the first thing in forensic science is that you've actually got to recognise that there is something there that might turn into potential evidence. So... The crime scene person's job is really about trying to spot what is potential evidence and then make sure that um, they, first of all, record it. Um, unlike CSI, we, we don't go in and just pick things up and say, wow, look at that, that must be important. So you've got to record it, and, and then you set about recovering it, and it, it then ends in, enters into the sort of chain that ultimately results in some work being done in the laboratory and then perhaps in court. All right, so when you walk in a crime scene, you've got to collect everything that's there. How do you know what's actually useful and what's not? Well, well, first of all, you wouldn't be thanked if you did collect everything that was there. <laughs> and often um, crime scenes are very complicated places. Uh, I mean, let's be frank about it. I mean, a lot of forensic signs, and particularly volume crime, and a lot of the listeners out there who might have been unlucky enough to be burgled, um, they're relatively simple um, the work of the crime scene person often is to go in and just look at the point of entry um, for any obvious evidence, perhaps fingerprints have been left if the, if the person's cut themselves blood or whatever. But in a complex crime scene, um, then it is much more difficult. And by definition, it's more complex. Um, and recognising what is important and what is not important is not that straightforward. Uh, I, I think you can train people to some extent but I actually think that what makes a good crime scene examiner, people have some inherent ability to be able to spot, in a sense, patterns, to spot what is unusual, and hence perhaps what might be, might be valuable later on. So what sort of physical evidence might we be leaving of our presence here today? Well, for a start, um, you know, you live in a, I love to describe it this way, in a soup of DNA. So nowadays, um, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, we can detect uh, you know, your DNA from absolutely trivial amounts of biological material. So, you know, you'll be dropping skin cells in here. Um, you might drop some hairs. We, we, we all lose about, you know, 100, 150 hairs a day. And, and those are good sources. Or some of them are good sources for DNA. You, you'll have left your fingerprints and things you've touched, and perhaps fibres from, uh, you know, from your clothing on the chair, perhaps picked up fibres from the carpet. And depending on the nature of the crime, you can have anything from glass, paint, you name it. Well, can you give us a definition of what forensics is? Because I think most of our listeners mm. will be pretty have a fair idea because it's covered so much in the popular media and their experience yeah. of it will be things through like CSI <clears> and other <throat> detective shows but what in your book is forensics? So, so the general public then will have a completely warped view of what forensic science is really like um, but the word forensic really just means pertaining to, to, to the law, pertaining to courts um, so in a sense that's the end game of forensic science a percentage of what we do and it's what makes forensic science unique um, is you going along to court 
giving evidence and, and most often in front of a jury um, who are the, the fact finders. Is it always about a legal case? I mean, is there a branch of forensics which is just to do with uncovering evidence that maybe uh, to do with uh, where did something in the environment come from? Is, it, is there a hard line here? Um, as I said, that's what, what def, in a definitional sense forensic science is, but it, it gives a false impression of it. It's only a tiny percentage of the actual work that you do, even in a, in a, a law enforcement forensic environment, ever ends actually up going to court. A lot of the time it's about um, helping the investigation and the investigator to try and work out what has happened. Um, because you know when you start an investigation you're not sure what's happened so and it doesn't need to be in a law enforcement environment so up at the University of Canberra where I now am um, you know one of the units that's taught up there is environmental forensics and, and that's an increasingly important field and uh, there whilst there might be a law enforcement outcome a lot of it is simply again saying has in fact uh, the, you know, an environmental pollutant there where might it have come from where's an oil spill from for example so I think uh, surveys have shown of uh, forensics people that you have to be uh, young, beautiful, female, look meaningfully mm. off into the distance. Yeah. Uh, but of course you are young and attractive, but uh, you have a Scottish but I'm accent. But not female. But you're not female. <laughs> not. Uh, but you have a, a bit of an interesting background, I think. So how did you come into this? Yeah. Um, well, I'm... I'm 60 years of age now, I'll admit that, and uh, I got into forensic science about uh, 35 years ago. I'd sort of gone through a typical academic, you know, sort of route. I had a bachelor's degree in agricultural botany. I'd done a PhD and I was looking to get into lecturing, and this job came up um, back in Glasgow. I'd left Glasgow by that time, um, and in this forensic unit, and uh, I sort of got in a sense I'm the accidental forensic scientist, but in my generation, most of us were because the, the, the program at Strathclyde Uni was one was the only program of its type in the United Kingdom at that time. There are now over 450 programs in universities in the United Kingdom with the word forensic attached to them. Wow, so it's a huge field. Now, our other guest here today, and fuzzy logic uh, regular, Broderick, you've got a background in forensics too. What's that? Yeah, well, I studied a uh, forensic undergraduate uh, degree at Flinders Uni back in Adelaide, um, and that was uh, forensic chemistry, so a lot of chemical testing, analytical work. Um, and then I did an honours year, honours project, work looking at... Um, ballpoint pennings uh, and trying to identify them using laser desorption ionisation. So basically uh, firing a laser at the ink and uh, seeing what comes off and identifying the dyes that are in the different inks because to, to make you know blue inks, black inks, red inks, the pen manufacturers use a whole lot of different dyes um, to work out what's going on there. Yeah, and uh, so in other words, if a piece of evidence comes in at a scene and there's say like a ransom note or something like that, and then the pen, the matching pen is found at the uh, place of a person who's a suspect, then you can link the two things. So is this idea of linking things, is that key to forensics? Yeah, there, I, there's really sort of two sort of main aspects of forensic science. One is obviously identity and, you know, identifying people who might have been involved. And that's where, you know, DNA has become such a powerful tool, fingerprints as well. But the other part of it's not the who done it, but the what happened. And it's more comparative. So a lot of the time, like the fibre example there, you might not be able to identify that absolutely that fibre um, die, you know, came from that document, but you 
can certainly compare them and say there are no meaningful differences and then interpret what that means in terms of what weight or strength it has as evidence. Yeah, well, one of the, the key things there is you talked about DNA identification, mm. and that's great because you can, um, you know, match DNA and you can... There's a lot of numbers involved, and biologists have done a lot of testing, so we can get the odds, you know, this is a, a one-in-one-million match or something like that, the probability of that happening by chance. But with other areas of, of forensics, like inks or fibres or, or even, you know, fingerprints on our hands... Can we can we quantify the matches there or say, you know, this is a probability of one in a million of having a match by chance? Well, it's interesting you raised the, the issue of fingerprints because uh, there was a very major report come out of the US a couple of years ago from the National Academy of Sciences and although it was called improving forensic science, it was quite critical of a lot of particularly the traditional forensic sciences like fingerprints and pattern matching in general um, because of the lack, in fact, of empirical evidence um, that, uh, that, that sort of supported, uh, well, with fingerprints, for example, that fingerprints are indeed unique. Um, the way that, one way in which forensic people have tried to address this is using what's called Bayesian statistics. Um, Bayes was a, a, a Church of England minister back in the 1800s and came up with this theorem which looks at uh, conditional probabilities and you work out something that's called a likelihood ratio so in order to work that ratio out you have to get, gather a lot of information about how common things are put a lot of different sort of factors into building that number however recently in the United Kingdom there's been a high court or appeal court verdict that's come out and effectively turned around and said unless you have those databases don't bring Bayesian statistics to court and it's, it's really quite a landmark decision um, which I think is going to have ramifications around uh, in Australia as well as, as in the United Kingdom and other parts of the world so if you're going to do something like your fibres and your dyes you really have to start doing population studies on those to say well okay the scientific testing may show that those two inks we can't actually see and I'll, uh, as I said I've used the term a meaningful difference because no two things are ever absolutely identical if you keep going and keep going and keep going you'll find something that's different because you're looking at Variation and saying, you know, what is real, what, what what is acceptable variation and what is not acceptable variation. So you've got to build these data banks. That's very, very time-consuming, intensive work. Um, but it's the sort of work that we've really got to do um, if we're going to improve um, the value of lots of trace evidence. So uh, one thing that I think that we like about uh, forensics as a topic is. It's a place where science really uh, gets very tangible, very real, and we can actually see the scientific yep. method in its progress. So it can be quite tough too. Like you talk about Bayesian, you talk about how you interpret evidence. It's pretty complicated stuff. When you get it into the court, you've got a, a jury of the peers, and who knows what their background is. How do you find the average jury can interpret and assimilate the information? Yeah, I'm, I'm the worst person to ask that question of because I'm never allowed to sit in a jury so I don't know what a jury experience is like. The, the, generally if you work in, in the field then you're really excluded from being in juries. Perhaps now I'm semi-retired that I might get to actually experience that but one of my students interestingly um, was able, you're not allowed to talk to juries either by law so you can't go to a jury and say, well, you know, what did, what did you actually think of the forensic evidence and, and, you know, what interpretation did you make of it, unless with special permission. And we had a, a lady, Rhonda Wheat, who finished her PhD a few years ago, who was able to talk to some juries, and it's quite scary. 
Um, and the sort of scary part about it is that, that whilst a lot of juries look at things like CSI and they know it's not true, um, but they just don't understand how untrue it is. Mm. And you know, I cut some of those jurors in these cases said, look, you know, um, this was a case where it hinged really on the presence or absence of DNA and we were not able to find any DNA in this case um, because the alleged offender allegedly um, had been very forensically aware and I'd, I'd tried to make sure he left nothing behind. Um, but the jury said, look, you know, surely we've seen CSI, we know it's not true, but you, there must have been something there that you could have found, and they were willing to, you know, give the doubt, in a sense, that reasonable doubt thing, you know, to the, 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 the person, to the defendant in that case. Ah, now, the, I like that you said the, the suspect was, or the, uh, what's the term you use, the the person accused well, yeah. was forensically aware. Mm. Now, if I wanted to commit the perfect crime, uh, um, obviously you have a position of special knowledge on this subject, but uh, is it actually possible to uh, be so clinically precise, so uh, with such uh, rational a forethought that you could plan a crime and execute it so that it's almost impossible to prove? I probably shouldn't answer that question. <laughs> Can I plead the, 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 the fourth uh, amendment on that one? Well, I'm not going to ask you the how here, uh, because obviously that would, might be giving away... Uh, people who listen to Fuzzy Logic have been shown to be, uh, uh, you know, planning crimes of great sophistication. But uh, is it possible? Well, uh, well, look, I'll tell you this much. If you want to get away with the crime, then you, know, the, the, you basically need to do it on someone that you don't know. Stranger crimes are the hardest ones to, to actually work out. And when you're looking at genuinely sort of, uh, you know, evil people out there, and there are genuinely evil people out there who just murder people at random, they're the difficult ones to solve. Yes, look, the whole human side of this is something we were discussing before we went live. And I think we'll come back to that. I'm going to just play a little track here. And this is something from our library of classics. Uh, you're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Cumulator 2 X. Some classic hit there from uh, goodness knows who's didn't write it down uh, here on Community Radio 2 X 98.3 FM. My name is Rod. We are talking forensics today. And by the way, this station runs on your goodwill to a large extent, so please go onto our website and sponsor our show. Surveys have shown that Fuzzy Logic listeners are very generous when making contributions to the running of our show and to our station. So please go to www.2xfm.org.au and follow the links to make a donation or subscribe and there are lots of benefits helps us bring you shows like this we're talking forensics and uh, our special guest today is Dr James Robson who is the director of the National Centre for Forensic <laughs> Studies he got it right this time <laughs> and Roderick <laughs> now just before we broke to the song uh, James you talked about um people committing crime and you use the term something like um, some fairly undesirable sorts of people out there mm. how does it feel when you uh, come across a crime and you would obviously in your daily work and there are some pretty unsavory types out there how does it affect you? 
Look, uh, I think at the end of the day that what most forensic science people um, try to be is just very objective. Um, you focus on, the, in a sense, the signs and what you can observe and, and then you know, what you can analyse later on. But you know, there are some cases that get to you, and uh, you know, I remember one in particular when I worked in Adelaide, uh, which involved a young boy who was, I think, about three or four at the time, um, who was abducted by two people and murdered. And my son was about the same age at the time, and uh, very actually looked very like this kid. And you know, and I just hoped that when that came into the lab, I wasn't going to be allocated it to work on, because um, that that would have caused me a bit of problem. And and the, so the key really for forensic people. Is is you've got to try and not make the connections at a personal level and that can sound as if you know what I'm saying is that the forensic people are, are not warm fuzzy people um, but it's not about that the, the best job we can do is to sort of focus on the objective stuff um, keep focused on on making sure that the anything that we provide you know will be usable evidence um, as I say that might help the investigation or help at the end of the day the jury decide someone's guilt or innocence yeah, a sense of detachment. I guess my cousin was an ambulance driver for mm. many years on the Hume Highway, and I think what finally did it for him was uh, some children in a, an accident. So I noticed the first thing that, that to comes across with you, James, mm. is a vibrant sense of humour. Now, that must be something that you use to help you cope with this. Oh, I think a lot of frenzied people have got a dry sense <laughs> you have to rely on, but uh, probably best kept behind the scenes. But one shouldn't confuse the coping mechanisms in a sense that people use um, in our industry with a lack of care. And, you know, one of the, the really big jobs that, that, that happened in my watch, if you like, with AFP when I was a director there for 20 years, you know, was the Southeast Asian Tsunami. And, uh, you know, I, 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 although I wasn't really processing that, I mean, I was a senior manager, I went over there for about a week um, early on in that, and, you know, there was like 5,000 people killed just in, in, in Thailand in that one. And, you know, those bodies were not pleasant, let me tell you. And, you know, my guys were out there dealing with that day in, day out in some really, really difficult circumstances. Um, and, you know, and I'm, and I'm not saying that some of that stuff cumulatively doesn't have an effect on people. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, what keeps people focused was, was trying to make sure that we, you know, correctly identified those people and got them back to their loved ones. Um, I'm, I'm personally, really, you know, I, I can't speak highly enough of the, the individuals that were involved in that because that was tough work. Yeah, I, I, it's something way outside the experience of most of us and actually comprehending what has happened. So is there an active program of counselling or is it just in, done by yourselves, in amongst yourselves with your... I guess the sense mm. of comradeship is something that's really important mm. in this, in, in your shared experiences? Um, absolutely. And, and, I mean, again, you know, in that case, I mean, the, the Australian Federal Police and my group didn't do that on their own. This was a combined effort, you know, where we coordinated people from all around the country. So there was forensic people and police um, from pretty much every force um, in Australia. Um, so it really was a team effort. And some of the relationships that built up both with Australians, worked very closely with the New Zealanders, you know, and with our British counterparts, you know, have, have been enduring and, and, and lasting since then. But again, you know, the, the, it's not just about the forensic people. I mean, the AFP sent over, and one of probably the most key group of people were family liaison officers. Um, and they, in a sense, they were the ones who dealt with the families 
um, you know, and, and the relatives and so on, and, 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 and kept to, to a large extent the forensic people being able to just deal with the objective stuff. And, you know, personally, I think they had the toughest job of, of anyone. Um, I, as I say, I think forensic people, we can, we can in a sense deal with the horror of it, you know, by focusing on, as I say, on the objectively on what we can do to contribute to it. All right, well, let's focus on that objectivity for a second mm-hmm. there because um, forensics in most states, I believe, work very closely with the police, um, the scientists and the police working together. And obviously, forensic scientists are trying to tell a story, but a lot of science is about doing things without any preconceived notions in your head and just taking the results as they come. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do forensic scientists kind of maintain that in, in getting their results and, and not you know, having a preconceived notion in their head that there's going to be something there that will help us out. Hmm. Um, there's a thing called observational bias, and it's, it's a pretty hot topic at the moment with uh, some observers around the world, and it's, well, it's well understood in psychology, um, observational bias, and, and, it, and I'm, you know, it's something you've got to be really aware of, make sure that you don't fall into preconceived ideas. I, I'm not going to turn around and say that absolutely you don't do it, but what you've got to work very, very hard to do is maintain impartiality. The best way to maintain impartiality is to make sure that you're focusing on those objective things. The evidence is either there or it's not there, but what? But, but, but having said that, if you're only collecting evidence to support a particular theory that perhaps an investigator might have, then you might not collect other evidence that later on actually showed that, well, the investigator didn't get it right at the beginning and, and that there was a different story. So that's where forensic science can play a really important role. It's just by, sure, you've got to understand some idea of what might be happening, but you've got to go in with an open mind and make sure that you're also collecting, it goes back to where we started off this chat, you know, about recognising evidence. And uh, there's a study going on at the moment, actually, to look at what makes a good crime scene examiner, and a lot of people have put their thoughts and views into that. And certainly, as far as I'm concerned, what makes a good there's a lot of things go to making a good crime scene examiner. But but I think key to all of those is having that ability to recognise what might be useful and keeping that very professional and partial mindset. Well, as far as my experience with the South Australian system is, the crime scene examiners are police who've, who've been trained up as police men or police women and then done yeah. some special training um, in crime scene examination yeah. is it more important that they're specifically trained in crime scene examination or should they have that science background with them as well? Um, it's an interesting question, I've I both got a personal view on that but there is some empirical evidence to back it up now or at least social science empirical evidence um, and, uh, and, and that is that you know, having a science degree is helpful um, because uh, it means that people understand, first of all, um, the increasingly sophisticated tools that are available to them at the crime scene, um, but also it's about that mindset and keeping a mindset that you're really doing the science. Um, and you know, whilst that doesn't preclude you helping the investigation, after all, I mean, pl- police investigate crime. Um, nobody would suggest for a second they shouldn't investigate <laughs> crime and, and, and a perfectly legitimate part of forensic science is to be able to actually help them do that and provide them good, objective, impartial facts, if you like facts in the sense of at least scientific facts the interpretation of what those facts mean in the story is a different issue Now is there a, a clash of cultures though on this sometimes like the view of a policeman can be to secure conviction yeah, look, you know, that's a, I mean, that's a, 
I'm not going to say it's an easy one to say and sort of get defensive about it. Um, look, you know, I've I've seen a lot of things around the world. I've been involved in a variety of wrongful conviction royal commissions from Canada to here in Australia, you know, to the UK. So I've seen where things can go wrong. And sometimes when things go wrong, it is because the investigation, you know, goes down the wrong track because of tunnel vision. Someone's made their mind up too early that they have the right suspect and they don't keep in an open enough mind. So it would be foolish to deny that doesn't happen. But I think, to be honest with you, the vast, vast majority of police, you know, are not, you know, not focused primarily on getting a conviction. You know, they are focused on trying to collect, you know, the right evidence. And remembering at the end of the day, it's not the police who find someone guilty or innocent. You know, they only put forward the brief of evidence, you know, to the court. It's, it's people like you and, and, and Broderick there who make up juries who are ultimately asked to make a decision about whether they believe someone's story over someone else's story. And in the adversarial process, which is what we operate in, you've got to remember that. It's not, a, it's not an ultimate search for the truth. It's about the Crown turning around and saying, this is a little serious, but it's about the Crown turning around and saying, this is what we say happened. We say that was illegal. It's against the law. Uh, yeah, I do actually have a lot of sympathy for the police. Mm. It must be a very tough job. I mean, I looked in the Canberra Times the other day. They followed a policeman around or a couple during the mm. day's rounds. And the things that they're dealing with, they're pretty, you know, they're pretty tough and it must must wear you down a bit. Yeah, that's right. And I, I was going to come in there with the, the whole communicating what you're doing to the jury because mm. our court process is adversarial. It's one person's word against another. Yeah. And as a forensic scientist, you've certainly got science on your side, which is, as most people consider, a very factual, logical type thing. But how do you, uh, I suppose efficiently and accurately communicate that so you don't either give people the wrong idea and that your evidence is so strong that it can't be disproven mm. or that it's, um, you know, but when you want to play the, the conservative scientist and say, you know, we can only be this certain, how do you show that that is still good evidence? That's, that's, that's a $64,000 question. <laughs> if you can give me the answer to that, you can write a book with me and we'll make a fortune together. <laughs> um, the, that, that's the challenge. You know, the challenge is that in those, and let me remind you again, the very small percentage of cases that you actually ever end up in court. Um, and, you know, your, your challenge is to try to accurately, fairly get, as I said, the weight and substance over to ordinary people who make up juries and say, well, this is what you know, you should actually draw from what I'm from what I'm saying, and that that's a huge challenge. Yeah. On that, then I guess, um, and I'm, I'm, the legal terms are going to fail me here, but we've mm. got adversarial courts in Australia. I know some European courts have inquisitorial. Uh, inquisitorial. Mm. Thank you. Where the mm. the judge asks the questions of mm. of the people. Do those sort of systems work better for forensic science, where it's you know a judge who really doesn't know necessarily what's going on, asking the mm. questions of people? Well, look, I don't think that, uh, that frankly, one system or the other is, is perfect or, or better than the other. Um, you know, there's pros and cons in both systems. Funnily enough, in the Scottish court system, although it is adversarial, it also has a quasi-inquisitorial aspect to it as well. Um, and uh, there are certainly much more active judges in the Scottish court in asking questions and controlling what goes on. In the English legal system, judges, in a sense, are meant to sit back and let the players play out in a sense of the game. <laughs> now, it sounds a bit rude to call it a game, but you know the game that unfolds in a court trial. Um, I don't think it's about one being better than the other. It's just about understanding what they're actually trying to seek out. And the inquisitorial system, at least in theory, 
is supposed to be a search for the truth. So the actual rules of evidence are different to the rules of evidence in our adversarial system. The adversarial system is set up to balance in a very fair way the defendant's rights because effectively what you're doing is you know you're putting up an individual against the state and the state has all the power and the resources in a sense the individual doesn't so while some people look and say you know oh, we're being soft in defendants well hey if you're a, if you were the defendant sitting in there i'm sure you'd like it actually to be stacked to, you know to, to basically give you a fair go as well Yes, well, when you look across the range of things that you must deal with in forensic science, it's not just about the hard things like analysing hair, DNA, oil and fingerprints. It's also the complexities of dealing with people, the legal system and even your own reaction to the things that you have to see on a daily basis. So we are talking forensics and I'm going to cut to a track now. Here's another bit of classic music for you here on Community 2 X. 98.3 FM, please uh, go on to the uh, website to xxfm.org.au and make a sponsorship or sponsor our station to help you us bring you a program such as this. Our guest today is Dr. James Robertson, and also actually you are a, a professor of some sort, aren't you, James? A professorial fellow at the University of Canberra. Professorial fellow, yeah. that's a Wow. Grand That's... title. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when we come back, I think we might uh, dig more into uh, some things about the tsunami, the Bali bombing, and the thing called the Tizoni case. So you're on Community Radio 2XX. Here's some classic something or other from whoever. We'll find out. And that was The Shadows um, from my era, the 1960s. <laughs> and we are listening to... Two double X, the community radio, fuzzy logic science show on community radio. Two double X, yes, good on you. And, and our guest today, and we are talking forensics, is Dr. James Robinson, Professor F- uh, Professor Soriel. I can't even say it. I even had a drink. <laughs> Fellow at the University of Canberra and uh, Broderick, and my name is Rod. Now, before we cut to the uh, the shadows, there, uh, you mentioned uh, the tsunami. So, when you got to Bali, w- what did you find? Uh, well, okay, tsunami was, 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 of course, was out in Phuket. Oh, sorry, um, I'm yeah, thinking that's of, okay. I'm thinking well, of the Don't worry, bombing, it's early in the day still. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I, I'm, as I say, my um, guys had gone out there very early on because uh, the Thai police had asked the FP to uh, to help them, and we ended up sort of coordinating all the international effort. And there was people from over 40 countries turned up to help with the disaster victim identification. So by the time I'd got out there, um, you know, there was a lot of people on the ground, um, a lot of people there wanting to try and do the right thing, but, uh, you know, we had to get a sense of organisation about it. So, you know, I guess part of my role out there was to try and sort of set up some structures that then worked for the rest of that uh, that exercise, which went on for over a year. And again, these things sort of tend to slip off the radar screen and people think that you're just there for a few weeks. But, you know, we were there actually for over 12 months. So can you describe what it looked like? Were there like piles of debris? I'm sure you actually want your your listeners to know what it looked like. Well, not so much of the gory mm. detail, but... uh, what, what what did you see? Well, I actually, you've heard of people talk about a helicopter view of life, and funnily enough, I'd never been up in a helicopter before, so one of the things we did was to go up in a helicopter and fly over all of the, the areas, so 
people might recall PP Island, um, which was particularly devastated. And I guess the fascinating thing about it from, from, from that helicopter view was it was almost like sort of hand of God stuff is the way I thought about it, that you would have one part of the coastline unaffected and then round the corner it would be wiped out. You know, whole resort buildings gone, washed kilometres inland. I mean, that's what it was like. Uh, I, was ch- I remember chatting to one of our embassy people over there who'd been driving um, close to, to the tsunami area along the main road, and he described people walking out from the forest, you know, sort of their clothes and rags and so on. These were the survivors that had actually been washed through all these trees, forests, debris, you know, and hadn't been killed. So it's, it's really the human dimension of the whole thing and just, the, in a sense, the randomness you know, of the damage, you know, you just could, you could have been one spot and you were fine. You could have been a couple of kilometres up the road and, and that was you. So from the forensics point of view, what was your objective in being there? Um, well, again, uh, just recovering um, the, the deceased people, um, you know, was a huge exercise. But that had largely taken place by the time we arrived there when they had been taken um, to temples. Um, and uh, they'd set up, uh, well, part of the earlier uh, stuff was setting up temporary morgues um, in those temples to, to conduct post-mortems and to be able, more importantly, to recover potential forensic evidence that might um, lead to identifying the people. I mean, this was a very hot, sticky, um, humid you know, time of year out there, and you know, bodies deteriorate very quickly, and there wasn't early refrigeration, um, so it took some days to get refrigeration trucks, you know, to these places where people could be then, you know, the bodies could be kept. Um, so recovering fingerprints from, you know, bodies that were not in good condition, recovering DNA in a condition that it could be examined, you know, and in this particular case, you know, those were the, were, and, and odontology, forensic dentistry, those were the three main things in any disaster victim identification incident that are used to identify people, but in the condition of these bodies, particularly challenging around the DNA and the fingerprints. So I'm sure the part of dealing with a situation like this is the rewards you get out of doing it. So am I right in suggesting that one of the paybacks for enduring this kind of scene is that you're able to give some closure, I know that's not the right word, but some certainty to the, to the people, the friends and relatives of the people who are the victims here? Is that something that yeah, you no, take look, from I, this? I think you got the word right, absolutely. The first time it is about a sense of closure and you know, I know that the you know the sense of achievement that my staff got out of it and, and the rest of the Australians that were involved in this was knowing that one, you know, not just we'd identified the Australians that were killed there, but people from all around the world. Um, it was a truly international effort. Um, and you know other people and, and a guy that works up in New South Wales you know he's continued on to work in Thailand he actually um, is doing work building um, homes for orphans you know out there so a lot of people got tremendously you know again did get emotionally involved in it you know and have tried to do really practical things afterwards mm, and, and I guess I just sorry one other thing I'm going to get a little bit serious but you know one of the other things that was particularly challenging in this particular one with the number of children that were killed you know, we were talking earlier on about you know how that sometimes can be the thing that affects people you know most, and and it certainly was in that case because uh, there was a lot of kids. There was a lot of holiday makers from Scandinavia. Um, a couple of the resorts that were wiped out specifically, you know, had a lot of Scandinavians there with young families. Yeah, I do remember talking to a nurse who worked in the uh, the ward, the cancer ward, the children's cancer ward, mm. and I asked her, "How do you 
deal with this because it can be a pretty bleak place. You've got the combination of cancer and children. And she said it's for the survivors and it's mm. for the families. That's what I, I take from this. Um, also, you mentioned three t- main branches of forensics in this kind of scene. Mm. So you said dentistry. What were the other two? Yeah, the, the, yeah, the three main identifiers are um, in any DVI incident are either DNA, um, fingerprints, or uh, forensic dentistry, odontology. Um, and, uh, you know, if you can get dental records, they're very good. It's interesting thing is, is that probably as our world progresses, that's going to become less useful because people's teeth are better. So they don't, seriously, they don't have the, the, the amount of, if you looked at my mouth, you'd find there's an amazing history of dental, a bit of a condemnation of the <laughs> Scottish de- dental system of the 1950s and 60s. What bits of a graffiti that dentists left in there? <laughs> <laughs> Lots of amalgam. <laughs> All right, well, the AFP had a lot to do with the tsunami and there it really was just about um, the victims and what had happened but the AFP also worked with the Bali bombing I believe and there it would have been a very different case because I mean you were still trying to identify victims but were you also collecting evidence yeah, to try and work uh, out what happened? Well, absolutely, and uh, and you know, again, in the first Bali bombing, uh, just understanding what had happened, reconstructing, um, you know, the, the you know what had happened through the forensic evidence was absolutely critical, you know, to the investigation. It was uh, you know forensic evidence that led to the first suspect, um, Rosie. Um, it was uh, uh, interpretation of what had happened there. Um, around the explosion that gave the investigators information that they could then use when they were interviewing them. And so within my group, um, which was Forensic and Data Centres, you know, we had the Australian Bomb Data Centre as well. Um, and one of the great strengths, I think, of the work we could do is, is that we could put those bomb technicians, you know, explosives experts in the field along with the forensic experts and really build up a picture you know, of what might have happened. So, so what I was saying earlier on, the, the focus in forensic science a lot of the time is on the court side, and that's understandable because it's the bit the public see the most of. But, that's, you, know, you know, that's probably 1% or 2% at most of the work that actually goes on in the forensic lab. But I, I mean, a lot of what we're about is really telling a story, trying to understand a story. You know, trying to do those sorts of reconstructions and whilst I'd love to say to you that we're like CSI and we can be like the fly of the wall and say ah that's what the person did it's not really like that but that nonetheless is the game the game's trying to say what happened here what sort of evidence might then lead to you know a suspect and then from there if, you know for example to other suspects and so on and it builds up and that's what very much Bali was about so identifying what had happened in the two principal explosions, what materials had been used, which actually turned out to be quite unusual. And, and again, people forget, but that was the first case where a suicide bomber had been seen in this part of the world as well. So again, there was a, you know, some degree of scepticism around that, and the forensic evidence was what largely built that picture up and, and actually showed that it was a suicide bomber. Um, and we tend to focus now on the physical parts mm. of forensics, so the uh, the fingerprints, the DNA, the teeth, and so on. Uh, what about uh, these days? Oh, like I got a caller the other day at home, and they're trying to scam some money out of me, telling me my mm. computer is broken, and that they need to do me to do some things. 
Is there a whole new frontier now of electronics, uh, yeah, and computers, and internet, and so on? Yeah, the, the new the new DNA in a sense is computer forensics, and uh, you know there's been a massive growth in computer forensic um, within the FP and other organisations as well. Um, and you know, so I mean, the reality is any place you walk into. You know, has got electronic devices, whether they're your mobile phone, you know, frankly, your car's got digital devices in it that tell it what to do. There's virtually nothing that doesn't have a computer in it today of some shape or form. So, you know, extracting data from that, turning that into information is, is, is really yeah. a, a huge task. Well, a, fa- a fascinating story that a friend of mine has uh, told me about is that he was doing forensics on people who are doing telephone fraud, and they mm. get a mobile phone, they run up a really big account, and then uh, ditch the phone and get another account. And so the telecoms company was trying to find these people. And w- the way they did it uh, is that the, each person has a pattern of callers, so you have a, uh, you, like I have a, a set of numbers in my phone. I call this person, this person, this person. My wife, who lives in the same address as me, would have a very similar profile. But her fingerprint, if you like, or her call profile is very different. Now, actually, earlier during the music break, Broderick, you were telling us about a friend of yours who uh, committed the, the perfect crime, or tried to, by oh, yeah. himself with, with Vaseline. <laughs> well, it's, what it's was he doing? one of those stories that sort of I've heard floating around the forensic community of a guy that um, had watched one of the, the CSI shows and, and heard that fibre evidence and hair evidence can be quite useful. And so he decided he was going to um, beat this and, and decided, well, to get rid of all the clothes fibre evidence, uh, he'd commit the robbery naked, um, no possible fibres there. And to, to keep all his hair in, he put on a, a skull cap, um, you know, a swimming cap type thing to keep the hair in. And so he was planning to rob this house, and he'd say he rocked up naked. But just just in case the police did rock up in time, there was an alarm or something, he decided to coat himself in Vaseline. Um, Now, he successfully robbed the place and uh, got away, and the police rocked up, and they didn't find any clothes fibre evidence, they didn't find any hair evidence, but what they did find were the best fingerprints they'd ever seen at a crime scene, perfectly preserved in the Vaseline. So uh, it sounds th- sounds like a slippery customer to oh, me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boom, boom. <laughs> my daughter's uh, listening. That's it. She, I've lost my credibility. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, you've seen some other interesting cases, apart from people coating themselves in Vaseline, mm. which is... Uh, yeah, okay. I wouldn't recommend that, actually. <laughs> well, good for novelty. Apart from running around naked, screening robberies, I think you might get a few strange looks. <laughs> yes, well, if you want to get the slip past idea unnoticed, uh, being naked covered in Vaseline is probably not the way to do no. it. <laughs> uh, uh, now, there's some other interesting cases that you're telling us about before we, we went live, James. Uh, can you give us so that, like, there's a Sony case, for example, or yeah. a Splat case? Let's yeah, talk well, some well, of those. well uh, you know, again, I think Tazoni is interesting in illustrating one of the points we've been chatting about. Uh, it was a, a murder that took place in New South Wales in French's Forest back in the, the late 90s, and I got involved with it because it was a fibre case, and that's one of my sort of areas of expertise. And, and very briefly, um, there were fibres on the shoes of this uh, young girl who had been who had been murdered, and she'd been thrown down an embankment um, off the um, I've forgotten the name of now. It was in French's forest anyway. Um, and you know, this was a case where it gets back again to the crime scene examiner's role because he spotted the fibres on the shoes, 
and and he recorded them at the scene. He recorded some good video and still images of how the fibres were actually held on the shoes, and then he protected the shoes um, so that when the body went off to the morgue um, and the post-mortem was done, none of that forensic evidence was lost. And those fibres ended up being linked back to the boyfriend's car, um, that may not sound terribly remarkable. A little more remarkable was that only 200 of those cars had ever been imported to Australia, and the carpet that had been used in them was also a, a very short-run carpet, hadn't been used in other vehicles. And the police were able, you know, through good investigative work, to exclude almost all of the other potential vehicles. So, in as far as you can ever turn around and say that fibres definitely came from a particular source, you know, these fibres, you know, came from the boyfriend's car. But the real question was when. So, you know, there was very, very little work published on this. It goes back again to the importance of research. So we had a student at the University of Technology, Sydney, in their forensic programme who did this as our honours project. She looked at transfer of fibres uh, from carpets to shoes and how long they last and how quickly they're lost. And, you know, the kind of bottom line in this is is, is that unless there's some very unusual circumstance, fibres last on shoes for a remarkably short period of time, like minutes, you know, at most. So, you know, effectively in this case, um, she was either dead in the car and then thrown out, or if she was alive when she got out of the car, she was killed almost immediately. Um, you know, the coincidence of, if you like, the boyfriend dropping her off at the side of this road and then some homicidal maniac coming along and killing her, you know, at that point, I think the jury, you know, obviously worked that one out. And I was asked a question in that case, which uh, I never thought I'd be asked as a forensic scientist, as a witness, and, and that was from the defence lawyer. I suppose one last desperate sort of question was, do you understand the significance of the evidence you're giving? And I looked to the jury and said, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, you know, that evidence basically meant that she was, as I say, either killed and dumped from the car or, you know, very shortly after she left the car. Well, I think one of the fantastic things about uh, forensics and why it's such a good subject for fuzzy logic is that it's a very real application of science mm. connected with very, uh, uh, with stories that we can relate to as people like a murder scene or, or things that we know about through the media or through reading things and what you are really are you're like real world Mythbusters did, did, you, did you watch the Mythbusters? Uh, um, occasionally Occasionally, <laughs> but, but that they don't just what's, the, what's their, their tagline they don't just something or other mm. they put it to the test yeah. So this is really what you're doing, yeah, it's an application absolutely. of a scientific and, method. You know, I, I started off life uh, in an academic role. I was 10 years at the University of Strathclyde teaching forensic science. My wife jokes, I just had a 25-year sabbatical from that working in the industry when I came to Australia, and I'm back now um, in an academic role with my colleagues up at the University of Canberra. But, you know, uh, sometimes I'm asking, why, why has forensic science become so popular with young people, and particularly women? I mean, you know, about 80% of all the students in Australia that study forensic science are female. I'm sure Broderick loved that when he was a student <laughs> at Flinders. You know, he's laughing at that one. But, uh, but you know, and I sort of said, well, why is that so? And I think it's very simple, particularly for females. In studying science, and one of the reasons why science perhaps was less attractive to, to females in the past was that they want to see social relevance. They want to actually see that what they actually do mm. as scientists translates into something that actually helps people. And, you know, forensics a tough business at times, but it's one of those fields where there's a, a lot of instant or at least short 
term, you know, pleasure and gratification in the sense that you can see what you do actually resulting in something tangible right, well, and socially relevant. Mm, definitely. Well, before we get into how people could actually get into mm. forensic science themselves, I've got the, the question um, about research in forensic science yeah. because we talked before about an honours project done and certainly in, in many different mm. forms of science there's people that do research and there's people that take that research and then use it on an everyday basis. Mm. Now the forensic scientists we think of are the people that use the science on an everyday basis but how do we get um, new techniques and new science mm. into forensics? You know, How does it come from research into the, the mainstream? Well, I, I mean, a big part of certainly you know what I did when I was with the AFP was to build up a, a significant research presence for the AFP, and you know we've, we had a chief scientist uh, previously. It was a guy called Chris Leonard, who's now the professor of forensic studies at UC. Um, he runs a, the academic discipline up there, and it's now a guy called Paul Kirkbride. And we we put a lot of emphasis on that because you know um, science has got to be about innovation. Um, and you know uh, it starts from very short projects undergraduate level through to PhDs and, and postdocs uh, and you know as I say if we're not innovating if we're not introducing new techniques and better techniques um, then obviously we're going to fall behind the game of the, the challenges if you like that are posed to us by the people who commit crime um, so it's a, it's a huge task uh, you know, I'd like to see a lot more of it and part of the problem in, 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 in academic forensic science is that uh, we're not really kind of recognised as a pure science. Um, it's interesting that Louis, no, no, no less a figure than Louis Pasteur, actually turned around and said oh, a couple hundred years ago that there is no such thing as applied science. There's only the application of science, and I like that. You know, and I think that frankly, a few of our more pure academic colleagues, you know, perhaps should give some thought to that. Forensic science is one of those fields where we're applying real science and can come out of the most basic blue sky stuff and end up working for us. As an example of that, you know, lasers, if you were sitting talking about lasers 40 years ago, you'd be saying, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon, but, you know, so what? Well, you know, today lasers are a key part of looking at things like enhancing fingerprints, all sorts of application in science. So often the gap between you know, what you consider basic blue sky and, and applied sciences you know, may take two, te two, three decades to happen. So we're in the business in a sense of trying to pick up those sorts of things you know, through innovation, make sure we're applying them a little bit more quickly you know, to solving forensic problems and we could do with a lot more of it. So it must be a tough field to keep up with because there's so many things going on. Uh, the, what, what do you see as the major developments of, uh, in the fields of forensics? I think the main something I've been very passionate about and, and for quite a long time, you know, is taking forensic science out of the lab and into the field. And, and this sort of um, distinction that there is that in some way a person who's a crime scene person is not a forensic scientist, um, I think, is, is nonsense. We, we operate in a continuum. We've got to be applying science in the field, in, in my view. Um, and increasingly, as I say, we'll get better and better technologies that we can use in the field. I mean, in everyday traditional crime scene work, you know, for volume crime, perhaps disappointing, and we're not doing, you know, using those technologies as much. But when you get up to the higher end game, like um, terrorism events, explosions, and so on, there's now a lot of good field equipment that can mean the investigator gets, you know, results that are far quicker. Than, than when some stuff goes into the laboratory because sadly, and it is a reality of life around the world, um, forensic labs have got backlogs 
Um, goes back to one of the very early things we were talking about, about you wouldn't be thanked if you collected everything. Because, you know, if you, seriously, if you collect lots of irrelevant noise, then that just clogs the system up. Um, so, you know, forensic science is as much as anything about actually managing, you know, the information. It's about managing what's happening at the crime scene and then managing what happens in the laboratory to try to make sure you're answering the most relevant questions. Because nobody's going to thank you for answering everything, you know, if you deliver that result two years after the person's got out of jail. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of them must be the um, electronics and miniaturisation and ability to do yeah, things. Yeah, and, and it's been disappointing, like, I think, to see how slow some of that has happened. I mean, a lot of the technologies, frankly, are just old generation technologies made slightly smaller and put in a box. Um, the real innovation or genuine micro-equipment's only just beginning to come through. But I think it's a very exciting future in the next five to ten years because I'm sure some of these technologies will come through. But what we need in the field is we need cheap, fast testing because it's the speed. It's the ability to be able to give not necessarily a 100% answer. It's got to be after right the correct answer, but not the 100% answer. You might still often will stuff to go back to the laboratory to do that. But the more information you can give and the earlier you can give that information that's good quality information that informs the investigation, then the more value forensic science has. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, just to go right back to something we talked about way earlier in the show, and that was humour. Mm. As if to, just to do a 90 degree change in conversation here um, we talked about the, the role of humour and I'm going to ask you in a moment uh, do you have a favourite forensics joke but I, I, it's come to me now what the joke was that my dad used to tell me about when he was in Korea and the enemy were on the other side of the line and they called out in, in the dark you know, in the middle of the night tonight we are going to come across lines and we are going to kill you and one of the Australian soldiers piped up and says well, bring your own beer, you bastards. <laughs> but that, that was an example of, uh, uh, of dealing humor. of black humour, of, of, of diffusing the course of the roar of laughter when I crossed the Australian lines and all of a sudden it wasn't quite so bad. Now, do you have a, well, a favourite well, Friends I've, joke? I've got a huge collection of, of funny overheads because I love Larson and, and all those sorts of things. They're a bit hard to in radio perhaps to explain, but one of them I think is a bit black. Is uh, is a, a, a picture of uh, of uh, a nursery on one side and a dingo farm on the other side, and, and it says, <laughs> I, "I I think we're in trouble here, lads." Because <laughs> hearts back to the Chamberlain case, and you shouldn't really make light of any of those things. But you know, as I said, you know, there's a lot of fairly black humour around our world and you know, it's partly a coping mechanism for people well I guess it's, it depends on where you're making the joke, if, you, if well, it's when exactly. you go back to the office and mm. you're out of your shot of the mm. poor person mm. who's afflicted by the crime mm. um, and, and you mentioned the Chamberlain case now, I think it's been done to death but um, let's just talk a little bit about where forensics can go wrong and what are the main classic sort of mistakes that are happening in, in forensics, well, I mean I think you've talked mm. about polluting the crime mm. scene a bit but what, what other things yeah. come to mind? Well, the, 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 when you look at, um, you know, as I said, I've been involved in a few wrongful conviction major cases around the world, it's, you know, it's never one thing, and it's never just forensic science. It's where you get several things all coming together, you know, that, that, that you end up getting these major things go wrong. But the biggest, worst thing that can happen in forensic science is simply not recognising that a crime's been committed. So, you know, when you look at the Chamberlain case, quite rightly, that was treated initially as this kid's gone missing. You know, the baby's been taken. 
and uh, the initial treatment therefore is to try and find the baby um, rather than saying this might be a crime scene um, and we need to preserve it and so on and that's the key if you don't preserve a crime scene then evidence will get lost um, and then you're trying to reconstruct in a sense events um, where bits of the picture are missing and they're missing because they've been lost because it wasn't recognised early on that in fact a crime might have been committed I did another case in Canada called the Moran case and again there was a young girl that was abducted and very much the same thing initially it wasn't treated as a, as a crime they, didn't, they thought the girl would just not turn up at home she'd gone off with some friends or whatever else and that first few hours you know, can be absolutely crucial mm. OK well uh now we talked about the uh, if people want to get into forensics, yes. uh, we have a. This program is the here. advert coming up. This is this is, a, this is a note from our sponsor. Uh, we have a program here at the University of Canberra. Yeah, we've got a, a we've got a couple of programs in Canberra. Um, the Canberra Institute of Technology um, also offer, offers forensic programs, and um, the National Centre actually is made up of the AFP, the Canberra Institute of Technology, and the University of Canberra. So if you want to go and do crime scene work specifically then Canberra Institute of Technology is the place to go, they offer everything from certificates through to a, a bachelor's degree um, the University of Canberra is more laboratory based, so if you want to be a biologist or a chemist then you know, the university is the place to go um, and uh, you know, they're both you know, good, good programs in Australia um, there are other programs around and the uh, University of Technology in Sydney has a, a terrific uh, forensic chemistry program as well and of course we've heard about Flinders if you live in South Australia, so Australia's probably got about, about 18 programs in total around the country but we're fortunate here in Canberra as I say in having a couple of good programs and you know, this is the sort of time of year that kids are deciding you know, what they want to go and do so uh, you know Give us a call or look up our website if you're, if you're still making your mind up. Well, there you go. That's a good plug. And uh, I think we might come back to the topic of forensics here on Fuzzy Logic. We'll get some more forensic specialists on because it is a, a fascinating field and certainly our listeners will have had a very good insight as to what goes on in the forensics mind. And, of course, we have left a trail of evidence here in the studio on the internet. So uh, it's time now to say thank you very much to our guest, uh, Dr. James Robinson, the uh, Director of the National Centre for Forensic Studies. Thank you very much for coming yeah, on to Fuzzy Logic. It's been my pleasure and I uh, hope the listeners have enjoyed listening to a little, some insight and some personal thoughts about forensic science. So thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> <laughs>